Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Uh, Alina is, well, she's always bouncing off the walls, let's be honest, but she's especially excited today. Why are you especially excited, Alina? Because today is World War II Day. I'm always excited on a World War II Day. But we've got with us today Chris Millington, who's a lecturer in modern European history at Manchester Metropolitan University. He specialises in the, in the history of modern France and violence. And he's published books like From Victory to Vichy Veterans in Interwar France and his most recent book, France in the Second World War, Collaboration, Resistance, Holocaust, Empire. But today we're going to concentrate on one very small aspect during uh, the Second World War, and that is Vichy France. So Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Oh, Alina's in love with you already. This is a jolly subject. We love <laughs> subjects. I've got the book, and I, I I got it from you actually. Funnily enough, uh, when you sent me that batch of books, and it's I, I was literally telling Chris before we started recording, it's on my Polish World War Two shelf, and it's the only French book. It has the prime spot. What an honour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you just said you basically uh, lockdown means nothing to you because you have two children so you've been in lockdown for four years anyway yeah no I, yeah I couldn't go out anyway so nothing's changed <laughs> brilliant what's the one thing you are going to do when everything reopens though uh, go to soft play <laughs> <laughs> okay. which I do enjoy <laughs> yeah oh that's all right then don't just don't enjoy it too much otherwise no. you're a weirdo right? I, will, I will be going with my children <laughs> yeah <laughs> I got my cup final ticket yesterday. I'm like, I'm going out into the world. I'm going to be sitting in a three quarters empty Wembley Stadium next weekend, which I'll by yourself. I know. I'm like, I'm wondering if I can even, are we even allowed to sit near each other within that? I I have friends that are going, but are we going to like have to sit apart? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, let's talk about France. Uh, Let's, I tell you what, because let's just take, um, take it for granted that some people are like me and that they're not particularly experts in this uh, I know that France got invaded uh, what is the situation in France towards the end of June 1940 so that's after Dunkirk isn't it so that's like there's no liberation coming so what happens after that fails um well I think it's it's difficult to underestimate the catastrophe that has happened in France in June 1940 um probably I know I know I'm a French historian saying this one of the biggest catastrophes of the 20th century so so France is invaded as you say by Germany in May uh, on the 10th of May 1940 and five days later the the French prime minister says to Winston Churchill, you know, we've lost. We've lost the battle after five days. Um, and, and the disaster kind of unfolds over the next month as the Allies desperately try to fight back. Um, but by the middle of June, uh, the French recognise that it, it's over and there is only one thing left to do, and that's to ask for an armistice uh, with, with the Nazis. And this is uh, Marshal Philippe Pétain, who was the, the Prime Minister of France at the time. He, he announces on the 17th of June that there's going to be an end to the, the fighting. Oh, he's going to come up a lot, isn't he? Yes, yeah, he's kind of like the, the one figure of continuity throughout this whole period of occupation. As a World War One historian, in my world, he's like the hero of France, but he definitely, that doesn't end that way, does it? Uh, no, not at all. He kind of blots his copybook <laughs> a little bit after after 1918. Um, as, uh, so he is the head of state, the head of this, this Vichy state between 1940 and 1944. 
uh, in France, technically dictator, although he's not as all powerful as we might think a dictator would be. You know, the one thing I will always remember is the date that uh, Paris fell. Okay, yeah, I am. I am going to bring in some concentration camp stuff because I have to. But it's the one day I remember because it is the day the first transport arrives uh, to Auschwitz, which is the 14th of June, 1940. It's really interesting if you watch what happens in places like Poland when that does happen and Paris falls. So, for example, in Krakow, the whole place is just like festooned with like swastikas and they're singing and they're firing their guns in the air and they're drinking. And it's this massive celebratory moment. And then you just watch the Poles just go shit yes yeah well well i i re was read somewhere that hitler had ordered the bells in germany to ring for a week i don't, I don't know if they ran continuously for a week uh but there's uh huge celebrations in germany and of course there's a a victory parade in paris which the french have to endure pretty much on a weekly basis throughout the whole occupation because so the, so the germans like to rub the french noses in it Right, so we're actually here to talk about Vichy France. We've got the scene set. We know what's happening in France. So can you expect, I mean, I know what Vichy France is. I'm assuming Alex knows what Vichy France is. But some, like she said, some of our listeners might not know. So can you explain to our listeners what actually is the Vichy regime? What, where is it? Um, good, that's a good question. Um, so the, the, the Vichy regime is essentially the, the government that runs France between July 1940 and the liberation in August 1944. It's, uh, it takes over from what was called the Third Republic, which was this democratic parliamentary regime. Um, so there is regime change in France after the defeat to Nazi Germany. Um, and it's regime change that's affected by the parliamentarians of the Republic. So they actually all get together at Vichy and uh, under the authority of the Prime Minister, Marshal Pater, and they vote the Third Republic out of existence uh, because they see that this is uh, such a, a catastrophe, catastrophe for France that something new needs to happen. They blame the Republic for the defeat. They see this, this disaster as evidence that there was something inherently wrong with uh, the Republic of the interwar years, or, or actually it goes back to 1870, the Third Republic. So it's not a Nazi requirement. And in fact, if you look at a country like Denmark, they did have some semblance of parliamentary democracy under the occupation, under Nazi occupation. Um, so the French did have uh, an option to continue with the, the Republic but they decide to uh, found this authoritarian Vichy regime uh, under Pater. And this is, it's kind of broadly welcomed by the French public because of, as we just mentioned, who Pétain is from the First World War, this war hero. He's a, a very grandfatherly figure. He's in his mid eighties uh, in 1940. And he, he portrays himself as this savior of the nation. And uh, if we think about the French are, stunned and humiliated and distraught in 1940 who better to kind of steady the ship and take things in a new direction than this man who's seen as the the embodiment of France itself oh boy did they get that wrong though didn't they Vichy France how is it divided and what is the forbidden zone okay um Yes, whenever I read about the Forbidden Zone, I think of the Planet of the Apes. I know, yeah. <laughs> That's the only reason I asked, because it was so exciting. Yeah, there, there is no uh, Statue of Liberty in the French Forbidden Zone. Oh, I've ruined the ending there of Planet of the Apes, haven't I? <laughs> That's right. They've had like 60 years to watch it now. <laughs> um, well, so France uh, is carved up. Um, by the Germans. So the, the Germans occupy the northern half of France and the Atlantic coastline. So this is the occupied zone. This is where the German troops are and where German military and security authorities are, are located. Um, below this German occupation zone is what's called the free zone. So that is technically Vichy. The, so the Vichy zone um, and between the north and the south there is an internal border called the demarcation line which you need special permission to cross and special documents um, to, to get across and the Germans do shut this border now and again when when they're unhappy with the French so so broadly there's this northern zone and southern zone um, 
Now, confusingly, the, the French regime in the south, so based at Vichy, does have authority over both zones. Um, it can it, The legislation it implements in the south applies to the north as well. It's just that in the north, the Germans can veto decisions and they can impose their own um, requirements and legislation too. So you've got these broadly two uh, zones in the north and the south, but there are other zones uh, as well. So there is uh, in the north of the country, part of France is put under uh, military control from Belgium. The German military command in Belgium takes two counties of France. Um, and then we have this, this forbidden zone, which stretches from the Somme in the north to the Jura, which is on the Swiss border. And it comprises six departments, so six counties of France. And it has portions of four other counties in it. Now, the reason this is called the Forbidden Zone is because that people who fled from this region in 1940 are not allowed to return there until 1943. So it's kind of a security zone. And there is also a reserved zone within this area for future German colonisation. Uh, so that's that's the Forbidden Zone in the, the northeast. And then we have other zones as well. So parts of Alsace are incorporated into the Third Reich and Germanized. And then you have an Italian occupation zone in the southeast of the country. Um, and that's just mainland France. That's just how mainland France is carved up. We've got to remember as well that France is an empire. So you have this imperial zone, I suppose we could call it, um, which stretches around the world too. So there's... It, if you're if you're asking kind of where is Vichy France, it's quite a complex answer. <laughs> I mean, I find this so interesting because the Germans do the same in Eastern Europe. So they come into uh, into Poland, um, into Slovakia, and they're carving everything. They have a plan for everything. You know, so this section will be incorporated into the Greater Third Reich. This section here will be for living space. This section here will be for you know those the, 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 those dirty poles, or you know the Russians, or or yeah. whatever. I just and I did not realize till I picked up your book how extensive it even was in France. I thought it was just happening in Eastern Europe. Yeah, well, I suppose the you are right. However, the plan for France is much different, obviously, than the plan for Poland. So Poland is like wiped off the map, really. But but the interesting thing is that at the time the French. What one of the arguments for collaboration or working with the Germans was, well, we don't want to end up like Poland. We don't want we don't want Polandization to, to happen, happen in France. So um, I think because the Germans don't see France as a land for future settlement, they're not as harsh in France as in Poland, although, although from my point of view, they're harsh enough. Clearly, though, I'm sorry, but no offence, Alina, if I was going to future colonise one, I'd take the one with the wine. <laughs> Not the vodka. Oh, you know I'm rubbish on vodka. In terms of practical occupation and how it looked to French people, are there any vast differences between like North and South? Um, yes. Uh, so there are the differences in terms of um, resistance uh, or what's possible in terms of resistance and, and also collaboration. So um, if we think about the north, that's where the German soldiers are. So um, there is a very visible German presence. So just in Paris, there, there are swash stickers everywhere. Um, there is a huge V for victory um, put on the uh, the French Parliament building. And uh, from, from mid-1941, there's a huge banner on the French Parliament building saying Germany is winning on all fronts which I suppose in mid-1941 it was. Um, so, so it's very visible. And so that means that for resistance groups, it's easy for them to say to the French, well, look, this here's the enemy. Um, you've got the German military administration. You've got the, uh, the German security forces uh, un under Himmler. Um, the Germans are out in public. So the the the... The resistance groups, the early resistance groups can say, well, what more evidence do you need that we are occupied and that we need to resist? However, that the German presence does mean they're much more fragmented in the north, the resistors, because it's just more difficult to, to resist because of 
the German soldiers there. Um, and this German presence has an effect on collaboration as well. So Paris is a hotbed of collaboration in uh, during the occupation of France because all the extremists and these uh, French fascists gravitate towards Paris because that's where they think that they can most influence Nazi policy uh, on France. Um, so it's quite, um, it's quite a bleak situation, I think, in the north of the country. Um, in the south, it's relatively freer because until the end of 1942, the Germans aren't there. So it's, we might talk about the occupation of France, but it's, it can be quite paradoxical to think that actually um, th there is no occupation in the south for, for a lot of the war. Um, and that has an interesting effect on the public because without German soldiers there, it's difficult for early resistors to persuade the public that there is something to resist. So who is the enemy? If you're, if you're living in southern France, who is the target? It, it's not the war hero, Marshal Pater, um, and there aren't any Germans there. So why bother resisting? So there's a lot of public complacency. And even some of the early resistance groups are quite positive about the Vichy regime because of Pater up until the end of 1941 uh, at the latest. Um, and one of the key things we have to remember about this, these resistors maybe not opposing Peyton as we think they should, is that they, this means that they are going along with a lot of repressive policies and discriminatory policies uh, as well. So it's, they're in quite an ambiguous position in the South, the, the early resistance groups. Can I chuck in? Um, sorry, Alina, I'm going off on a tangent. Like, Go for it. What I do. I'm just really interested in the mindset. Um, first of all, uh, in terms of is there your standard French collaborator or do they come from across French society? I mean, is there a certain type that is pro-Nazi and excited to see the Nazis come in or are they not excited? They're just pragmatic yeah, well, we the kind of different degrees of collaboration. So um, at the very extreme end, you have uh, French fascists. Um, and uh, it's probably not very well known that French, uh, that France has a very vibrant uh, fascist movement in the interwar years. Um, now, there's a lot of disagreement amongst historians about what exactly fascism is. But um, it, there are several fascist parties in France who can rely on the support of hundreds of thousands of French in the interwar years. Um, these fascist parties uh, are the most extreme collaborators, so some of them argue, well, we want a, a Nazi France uh, in, in, under the occupation. Um, interestingly, the Nazis aren't very keen on that. Um, the Nazis actually like Vichy because it's not very fascist, because, the, because Hitler does not want fascists in the occupied territories causing problems because remember fascists are ultra nationalists as well so hitler i suppose just wants a quiet life in the occupied territories um so he's happy for vichy to go along uh, as it is as a more conservative regime um as for other collaboration uh, or collaborators it depends on how you define collaboration so there are people who uh, would define it uh, very broadly. So simply doing doing anything to allow the occupation to continue or even doing nothing. So some historians would argue that apathy is collaboration because you're not actually physically resisting. This is, um, I was going to ask you, like, where is the line? I mean, I'm guessing it's still pretty bitter. If you go to someone and start talking in France about their family history, I guess it's quite bitter still, like where someone becomes defined as a collaborator or someone who just didn't like oppose it or just kept their mouth shut to keep their family safe. I I'm guessing it's still the lines are really blurred. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. So, uh, again, it, it all depends on your own definition of collaboration and your own definition of what you think people should have done. So um, this this idea that apathy is collaboration that was put forward by an American historian, Robert Paxton. Um, it's a very harsh assessment of the French. Um, 
and and other historians have preferred terms like accommodation. So you you just get on with things and accept things how they are. Um, but we the thing is, if we adopt this very broad definition of collaboration, you have to ask questions about just ordinary people. So like like the postman who delivered letters for the the German regime was he a collaborator because he's delivering the orders of the regime or or anyone who did not pick up a weapon and shoot a gun at a German soldier are they collaborators so man um, isn't it it's like especially in the north um I guess if you're in the south and you haven't done anything then as far as you're concerned you're like well there was nothing going on so I'm not a collaborator I just lived my life but if you're in the north and there's guys with guns pointed at you and you decide not to oppose it for the sake of not getting shot or not putting your family in danger, then to call you a collaborator is, you're right, it's really harsh, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Um, and uh, we always have to be careful about judging people in the past for the way they behaved, I suppose. But the, uh, you're right. I'd say that the, a minority of French are collaborators and a minority are resistors, but the vast majority of people just want to survive. Um, and uh, I think maybe, maybe coming from the British point of view or modern British point of view, the fact that we were not invaded or occupied and also the fact that we might like to um, kick the French a little bit now and again might lead us to be a bit a bit harsh on the way uh, the French behaved under the occupation, but they face daily choices about, about how to behave. Um, and uh, as, as you say, if you just want to protect your family, it's an incredibly difficult time. It's also that idea of those who just stood by and watched. I mean, that is a massive, massive issue in my field. You know, are you a collaborator because you watched your neighbours being taken away and put into a, a concentration camp? Because obviously there were a lot, I mean, a lot of French ended up in, in, in Poland in, in the concentration camps that were in occupied Poland because they were, for example, resistance or homosexual or uh, asocial or, you know, a variety of different things. So were you a collaborator because you watched your friend, your aunt, your uncle, your whoever be taken away? Yes, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Unless people, we can only comfortably categorise people if they behaved in a very active way collaborating or, or resisting um, and a, another really interesting point about collaboration and resistance is that they they generally only apply to the European uh, setting in the French context if we think about the French Empire um, there are certain territories of the French Empire controlled by the free French so Charles de Gaulle's forces who resist Vichy um, if you are um, one of the uh, original inhabitants of these territories, the one of the indigenous peoples, and you resist free French colonial government. What does that make you? Does that make you a collaborator with Vichy and the Nazis because you're resisting Charles de Gaulle? Or likewise, if you live in a, a Vichy-controlled territory of the empire and you um, oppose their colonial government does that technically make you a resistor to Nazi Germany so the this is something that historians are looking at more and more collaboration and resistance doesn't mean that much for a, a lot of French subjects right let's get back on track to some of these questions because I know Alex likes a little her little a little tangent she started it I had to finish it so no, <laughs> Right, so you have mentioned this very, very briefly uh, a couple of questions beforehand, and that was to do with the Italian zone. G explain this a little bit more, because that does come up in your book. Yes, yeah, so um, France is at war with Italy in 1940 from, from the 10th of June. Um, and uh, we might, or you might, uh, might recognise that at this point that Italy declares war on France when the battle is already over. Um, Italy invades France on the 20th of June. Uh, so this is sort of, sort of days before the armistice with Germany, um, largely because Mussolini thinks this is the right time to do it if, if, if I want something from, from, from the French. Um, the, the fascinating thing about the Italian invasion is that the French actually 
do a good job at repelling it because the the Italians invade through the Alps um, and the French fight bravely uh, and they they kind of repulse this Italian invasion. But then what happens is, of course, there is a more general defeat to Germany um, and a separate armistice is agreed with Italy um, on the 24th of June. And as part of this armistice, Hitler agrees to the Italians having this occupation zone in the southeast of France, which has about 20,000 French citizens in it. And it's bordered by a, a demilitarized area. Uh, as well, which be between France and, and this Italian zone. Um, and what the Italians try to do in this area, especially in the city of, uh, of Monton, is they try to Italianize it. So Mussolini has always said that he wants southeastern regions of France. He thinks that they are, uh, I suppose, technically Italian or ethnically Italian. Um, and so he uses the occupation to introduce Italian law into this area of France. He, he brings in the lira as a legal tender. There are Italian signs put up. Italian is used in schools. Um, and the, the Italian occupation authorities try to make this area like a shop window for Italian fascism or fascist imperialism. Um, and uh, they start to call it Italian uh, Montan, Italian Montan. Now, if you're living in this zone as a French citizen, um, you have to run all the risks that the, the French in the northern occupied zone do uh, in terms of uh, surveillance and repression. So you have the, the, the OVRA, the Italian secret services there. You have uh, Italian soldiers, uh, the Italian police. Um, and uh, this, uh, this, this repression, this surveillance expands after November 1942, which is when uh, the Allies invade North Africa because the Italian occupied zone expands in November 1942. So ultimately Italy um, gains about 4 million French citizens at the end of 1942. Um, and this is because Germany, um, something I haven't mentioned in, in 42, moves south. So the whole of the Fr France is occupied from November 42, because Hitler is worried about an invasion of Southern France from, from North Africa. So, so this Italian uh, zone is, is really interesting as kind of uh, a comparison with the German zone. And it's also interesting to look at the way the Vichy government interacts with the Italian government. So Vichy does collaborate with Italy in terms of um, allowing Italian forces to use French military bases. Uh, against the British. Um, but it also makes some secret agreements with the Italians um, about these military resources because Vichy thinks, well, if we keep something from the Germans and we keep this secret with the, the Italians, maybe we can drive a wedge between Rome and Berlin and it will be to, to our benefit. Okay, let's have a look at what this whole structure, because it, it's a bit complicated, this whole structure of the, of the government in Vichy France. And who are these actual people that were in power of Vichy? I mean, did they have influence um, in, in Paris or what were they, what were they doing? Um, yes, it, it's, it is a complex regime um, and it does change throughout the war year. So when we're thinking about Vichy France, we often have to ask ourselves, well, when, what, what time period uh, are we talking about? The, uh, as I mentioned, the one point of continuity is Marshal Payton. So he's head of the, uh, the, the regime throughout uh, the occupation. Um, he is, uh, he's a war hero. Um, he uh, has remained relatively out of politics in the interwar years. He, he was appointed Minister for War in the 1930s for a brief period, um, but he never ran for election. He's kind of appointed to this post as, a, as an expert, a non-elected expert. And he's very popular in France in the, the 1930s. Um, in fact, there, there was a, this is going to sound a very strange opinion poll conducted in 1935 by a national newspaper asking who, who would you like most like to be French dictator? And Marshal Payton wins 
uh, that he, and he wins it by a margin of nearly 200,000 votes. So he's very popular. And this cult of personality continues into the war years. So um, there is an anthem, uh, Vichy's national anthem, which is called, the translation of the title is At Your Service, Marshal. Um, school children are encouraged to write to the marshal. Um, they, there is a picture of him in all public buildings. In fact, it, some school children as well, there is evidence that they had pictures of him on, on the walls of their bedrooms uh, as well. He is so, he's so well liked. So here's the, here's the one point of continuity, but beneath him, there is a government of ministers that he appoints. Um, and there's probably two men who are most important to know about um, during the occupation in this government. Um, there is Pierre Laval, who uh, is uh, what's called the, the deputy prime minister. So essentially the head of the government. Uh, and there is Admiral uh, Francois Darlan. Um, now Laval um, is a, a former politician of the Third Republic. He uh, is instrumental in the demise of the Republic by kind of lobbying MPs to vote the Republic out of existence. Uh, in 1940. And he, um, he is prime minister or deputy prime minister twice. Um, for, and he is the head of the government longest of all these ministers. Um, he's often seen as, or he was seen in the past as sort of the, the evil genius behind collaboration, that it was his idea. Um, we since now know that Peyton was, was more involved with it than, than, than was previously thought. And uh, so that's Pierre Laval. And then we have a man called Admiral Francois Darlan, who is a, a very senior figure in the French Navy. And he runs Vichy as well for, for just over a year um, in between 1941 and 1942. And so what, what we have with Vichy is that we have a series of governments and each of these governments sort of has its own agenda. It has its own ministers um, they are pursuing different things um, and uh, they are all but they are all pursuing collaboration uh, with Germany at this time. So the Vichy regime is not really monolithic in terms of its, its goals or its agenda and in terms of its, its personnel. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Can I ask how many of these governmental figures in your research you found that um, are generally invested in France being... In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. In league with the Nazis. Um, that's, that's a good question because these men aren't generally recognised as fascists. The there are fascists who come into government, um, but this is kind of in the very last months of the occupation. So January 1944, there, there is a government reshuffle and 
what we might call genuine fascists are appointed, but this is because it's so, so desperate at the time. It's really the sharp end of the occupation. But before then, um, it's all their their main aim is to secure the best position possible for France in yeah. Hitler's kind of new order, because obviously they think Hitler's won the war. Um, so it's all about what can we get for France out of this? Um, now, that involves throwing many people under the bus for, for their own set national self-interest. Um, but, but that's their main concern. How, how best can we make collaboration work for us, even if it means doing the Germans bidding? What concessions can we get from them? I was going to say, is it just a case of these are French men and French patriots just trying to make the best of an awful, awful situation in some circumstances? Um, yes, that's yeah. Given what they do with that's the most positive. We're going to get assessment. to the bus growing, aren't we? <laughs> yes, um, but they, I think the one the problem they have um, is that they delude themselves into thinking that Hitler um, actually cares about France. Um, so they think that Hitler will welcome France as a partner in the Nazi New Order, and that if they collaborate, they will get concessions from Hitler. Whereas Hitler just wants to milk France, and he wants to crush France, and he just wants to take it for all he can. And he wants Paris as his showpiece, doesn't he? He's like... Uh, yes, so so the, there's this famous film of Hitler visiting uh, visiting Paris uh, just after the defeat of 1940, kind of as a tourist, really. Um, and you can imagine what kind of what a, what a prize Paris is uh, winning it in 1940. But he, he he doesn't care about the French at all. So let's get on to the National Revolution question. I mean, th- there was a National Revolution. What was it, and how did it all come about? Um, okay, well, this is a, this is a, a favourite question that I like to ask students. What was the National Revolution? And I, I ask it because it's just quite difficult to answer. Now um, it's your turn. You are now in the hot seat. Yes, yeah. I'll provide the perfect exam response. <laughs> um, so the, the National Revolution is that Vichy's programme for a complete renovation of the French nation. And if, if there's one goal behind it, it's to get rid of or to solve the problem of, or what it sees the problem of decadence. So it, it, it thinks that decadence um, comes from the Republic, the, the, the interwar democracy. And what it means by dec- decadence is moral decline and cultural decline, which it thinks has led to the defeat and the the collapse of France and traditional French values being being undermined by by democratic ideas. That's kind so, of parrot in the whole attack on Weimar Germany, isn't it? Uh, yes, yes, yeah. So so it's this uh, kind of uh, Vichy has this idea of the Third Republic as sort of this anything goes regime where people have low morals, and it, it cites certain types of evidence. To, uh, to, to prove this contention, for example, the low birth rate in France, which is an obsession for some people in the interwar years, uh, that men and women are not having enough children. And this is because they just want to live their own lives and have a nice time. Uh, so it, it says that this is a, one of the fundamental problems with France caused by democracy. And so this, it, this national revolution is it, its answer to this selfishness and individualism the the reason why it's um so complex is because it has a lot of different political tendencies mixed in with it partly because as i've mentioned there are lots of different people in government there are several changes of government and several changes of the leaders of government and so all these people try to put their own stamp on what the national revolution uh, is and pursue their own agendas. So the historians have recognised sort of several key themes in this national revolution, such as um, harking back to kind of a folkloric past where the the peasant is this noble ideal, um, all the way to an obsession with efficiency and innovation um, under Admiral Darlan in 1941, he brings technocrats into government to try and modernise things like French agriculture. And then you have this smattering of like fascist style components uh, too. So kind of like 
an idealization of like military discipline uh, and and self-reliance um a, a really significant thing about this national revolution is that it's applied on a global scale through the empire so the national revolution decided upon in france has an impact around the world um and Vichy actually sees the empire as this place of experimentation where we can try new things. Um, we can try and renovate French civilization through implementing the National Revolution uh, abroad. And, and so we see it, it's even applied in the farthest reaches of the French empire. So the, the colony that's furthest for France, from France is the island of Reunion, which is in the Indian Ocean. People lose their jobs in the administration there because uh, Vichy decides that naturalized foreigners uh, should not work for the regime. So this national revolution is sort of a global project for renovating uh, France. Um, and one thing I do like to uh, also say to my students after I've asked them what the national revolution is, is that I tell them what Pierre Laval said about the national revolution. Um, at his trial in the, at the end of the war. And he actually said that he didn't know what it was. <laughs> he, so he's the head of government twice under Vichy. Uh, and he says that he never used the expression and that everyone just put their own stamp on it and it was never defined. You know what, then? We have to throw in a clangor for all of your students that are going to rob your answer you've just given. Ah. Yeah, <laughs> rob in a clangor. Like, so obviously one of the laws was that everybody had to wear a stripy jumper and a garlic string around their neck and ride a bicycle, wasn't it? <laughs> I know that was a much older law in France. Yeah. <laughs> but it was revoked for the National Revolution. Yes, yes. Now that, you know that's if a student parrots that back at you that they've nicked your answer. Well, yes, and you yeah. can only drink red wine on a Sunday. Yeah, how decadent. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the, the Vichy France government, they bring in so many new policies, don't they, at this point? I mean, there is an idea of gendered thinking within these policies. I mean, how does this actually affect the citizens? Um, yeah, so, so although I said the National Revolution is really eclectic and complex, this, this gendered vision of France runs throughout a lot of the policies and it's a vision you probably won't be surprised to hear that men are the producers and women are the reproducers oh um, really yes so, so, <laughs> I know um so uh the and this is partly based on this idea to or this drive to combat depopulation uh, which some French have been concerned about since since even the 1870s. This is blamed on a traditional or a breakdown of traditional gender roles. So that, as I mentioned before, men and women are not having enough children, and partly because they are not they are not performing their their gender duties. So men are not fathering enough children. They are not virile enough. They've been feminized by democracy, and women are moving out of the home. Uh, and think that they have a right to do so. Uh, so Vichy decides, well, we're going to put them back in their rightful places. Yeah, um, a load of old men decided that women should just stay at home and have babies. Yes, <laughs> that I know. happened in history before. Yeah, it sounds familiar. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, yeah, so they introduce policies directed specifically at people having larger families. So um, they... Uh, introduce agencies to encourage people uh, through things like in financial incentives. They celebrate things like Mother's Day. Uh, they award medals to, to mothers uh, with, with lots of children. Um, but it also runs out throughout other policies as well. So for example, this idealization of the peasant, um, which is quite central to Vichy's propaganda. Um, this is linked to the fact that hard work, kind of toiling in the fields, is seen a sign of uh, seen as a sign of kind of moral probity and virility and and child rearing away from kind of unhealthy temptations. Uh, so so we see this gendered thinking in uh, throughout the National Revolution. Now, one of the most serious things or bits of pieces of legislation that Vichy introduces is called the Three Hundred Law. Um, because it was the the three hundredth law uh, of the of the regime, and this um, is very repressive. 
in terms of uh, repressing abortion. Uh, so it makes abortion a crime against not only society, but also the state and the French race. And it means that French abortionists and women seeking abortion can be tried in the same courts as terrorists and resistors, um, and they can receive the death penalty uh, for this. So, so Vichy really wants to control the private lives of families uh, and the public lives of families, but women, women in particular, again, unsurprisingly. Um, I don't know what to comment about that because... <sighs> I think I just I think I speak for both of us when I say yes that's a better response thank you because I'm, I'm sitting here in a bit of like um, stunned silence thinking how am I gonna what am I gonna how am I gonna respond to this I mean they are baby Nazis aren't they yeah totally the same as the sort of blonde woman with the plaits in all the pictures giving birth to loads of Aryan children in Nazi propaganda in the 30s isn't it Yes, exactly. yeah, I think we, we can at least say that there is kind of transnational similarities and uh, that these, be, because I suppose we have to remember that these movements all borrow from each other um, and they have much longer histories than, than, say, just starting in 1940. So these ideas, Vichy does take it to the next level, but these ideas about depopulation and banning abortion and and things like that they are they are been around in france for decades one organization that's really familiar to everybody is the hitler youth and uh, what kind of parallels can you draw because vichy has youth camps don't they are they, are they the same thing how do they operate uh, yes uh, they have two uh, youth organizations so there's there's one called the companions of france which is for um teenagers and up children up to the age of 20 I suppose um, and they uh, it's voluntary this one so they live in camps um, they do outdoor labour and social work um, which and it's all heavily infused with this national revolution propaganda um, it's a bit like the scouts more so than the Hitler youth uh, the, these companions of France um, there is also something called the the chantier de la jeunesse which translates as like the construction sites of youth, um, which is for uh, men aged 21. And it's to replace national service because the French can't enroll people in uh, national service anymore under the terms of the armistice. So, so they have these youth camps where men go and live for eight months. Um, there's a heavy emphasis on military style discipline. Uh, the heavy emphasis on morality as defined by Vichy. Um, and the, the cult of Marshall Payton. And uh, the hope is that if, if all 21-year-old men go and live in these camps, uh, this will combat the decadence um, instilled in them by the Republic and so that they will go on and transform France as, as, grow, as older adults. Um, it's uh, not very popular in France, be, partly because they, the Vichy has these big ideas, but due to the constraints of wartime, there's a lack of food in the camps, there's poor housing and many, many men are just bored um, and uh, doubtless bored by Vichy's kind of healthy body, healthy mind <laughs> philosophy. You mentioned this previously about, you know, daily life doesn't really change so much at the beginning of the regime, but does this actually change at all as we go through towards the end of the war? Uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's very difficult life in France at the time. At uh, this time, um, now th there are there is lots of there, there are lots of shortages. There is rationing. Um, rationing comes in pretty much straight away uh, in in autumn 1940, um, and the the rations for adults. Uh, so the the there is a category A of uh, of adult rations, which is the majority of French French people, so age between twenty and seventy. Um, these are very meagre. So the majority of French are living on thirteen hundred calories a day um, on these these state rations, um, and uh, like you only get like fifty grams of rice a month. Um, or uh, 250 grams of pasta a month, uh, which is hardly anything 
it's barely more than a handful. Um, and often even these meagre rations um, are not available in their entirety. So uh, in 1942 and 44 in particular, uh, there are shortages of the rations uh, too. So it's, it's very difficult to put food on the table. And this is compounded by shortages. Um, and it means long queues at uh, shops to get your rations and possibly when you get to the front of the queue the the ration is not there um there are shortages um partly because a lot of men are uh, away in germany as prisoners of war there's about uh, 1.5 million men held in germany as po as a pow uh, but also because germany takes food from france um so it takes like a fifth of the meat that France produces is taken by Germany. Um, and so Germany is partly responsible for, for this shortfall. Um, and all this just encourages the black market, really. Um, most French have to resort to black market goods to, to survive, whether it's food or clothing. And, and of course, this is very uneven, depending on where you live, what you have access to on the black market, and also how much money you have, because of course, prices are very much inflated uh, on the black market. And there are severe repressive measures against uh, black marketeers. Um, all the while, the French government doesn't really recognise that actually it's German soldiers that are partly funding the black market. Am I surprised? <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> Not remotely. Do you know what? I just, Alina, you asked this question. Why would I be asking this question? You go for it. I love that. <laughs> Pass the baton over. Fame that it's my turn and everything. But why would I be asking a question about the Holocaust? Go for it. Right. So um, I'm going to ask it. I'm going to ask it slightly differently because I've I've written it down in such a way that it's just it, it, there's no impact to that. So what I've actually written is how were the Jews treated in Vichy France? But I want to know a little bit more in depth. I just don't want to ask that simple, basic question. How was how were the Jewish how was the Jewish population treated in comparison with, for example, the occupied zones? I mean, what was the difference in their life? Obviously, we know that um, in you know Paris and big, uh, bigger cities and everything, Jews were being rounded up, sent to Drancy, Drancy onto Auschwitz, Auschwitz. They were selected and sent to the gas chambers. But was this different in Vichy France? Um, well, to begin with, the the statistics for for France uh, or the the French participation in the Holocaust are that that eighty thousand Jews died. Um, the the majority of those Jews were deported uh, to the east where they died, but roughly 4,000 of them died in French internment camps because there is a network of camps within France, uh, whether they are sort of holding camps before the Jews are deported or whether they're just internment camps or like, like prison camps. Um, Vichy is an anti-Semitic regime. So it, it draws on a long history of anti-Semitism in France, um, going back at least as far as the Dreyfus affair in the 1890s, this anti-Semitic uh, scandal that, that split that split the country. Um, and uh, this is exacerbated in the 30s when you have large uh, immigrant Jewish populations fleeing to France for asylum from Central and Eastern Europe. Um, and there is a, a, a revival of anti-Semitism in France uh, in the 1930s, these fascist parties are generally uh, anti-Semitic. So um, Vichy begins by introducing um, what it calls a Jewish statute in October 1940. Um, now, um, before this date, foreign Jews or some foreign Jews have already been arrested. And this is a really important point because Vichy treats foreign Jews differently to French-born Jews. Um, well, I'll say, say more about that in a minute, but this, this Jewish statute in October 1940, um, it defines who is a Jew and it lists the occupations and uh, things that the, the, these Jews can't do or, or the roles they can't perform. So for example, the professions that they will be excluded from. Um, Vichy introduces a second Jewish statute in 1941, again, uh, it, it defines Jews um, or, or who is a Jew, but it, it narrows the definition. So um, 
or, or rather, sorry, it widens the definition so more people can fall under this definition. And it extends the list of occupations that Jews are, are banned from. Now, the, the, uh, the motivation behind this does not come from Germany. These are French-inspired uh, measures. Uh, they are inspired by this history of anti-Semitism. Um, they are also inspired by the logic of collaboration. So the French think, well, if we do this, this might please the Germans um, and we might get something uh, from them. Um, and these are just the, the most famous examples of Vichy's anti-Semitic legislation. There are lots of other anti-Semitic laws and restrictions uh, that Vichy introduces. And these laws apply around the world. So that the handful of Jews living in Madagascar and Indochina, they are subject to Vichy's anti-Semitism. Uh, as well. Um, now, Vichy uh, becomes embroiled in the Holocaust in 1942 when Germany begins to ask for quotas of um, Jews from the occupied territories. Um, and uh, this is when the, the regime begins to arrest Jewish people very publicly. Um, the, the most famous arrest is in uh, July 1942, the, called the Valdiv Roundup, uh, where the, the French police, and it's important that we, we say that the French police arrest thousands of Jews in Paris and hold them in the Valdiv cycling stadium uh, in, in Paris before deporting them. Um, now, Vichy is not so comfortable with deporting French Jews. And this is where the distinction with foreign Jews comes in. Um, because Laval, who is in charge at this time, says to the Germans, well, we don't really want to give you the quota of French Jews that you've asked for, but we've got these immigrants that we don't want in our country, so you can have those instead. So these Jews who've been arrested and held in, in, in Vichy's internment camps um, from early in the war, they are deported. Um, and that is a French decision. And Laval goes one better, and this is something I always hate saying in my lectures and, and telling my students, um, because Laval says to the Germans, well, don't just take the adults because we don't want to look after the children. You can have the children as well. So, and that was a French decision. And it meant that 11,000 children from France were deported and murdered uh, in, in Eastern Europe. So, um, the, the French regime, as I've said, is anti-Semitic and it is closely involved in the, the, the murder of these 80,000 Jews during the occupation. It just, oh, it beggars belief. I, they, I, I know, it's... Uh, uh, children to be murdered, it just... Yeah, yeah I, as I said, it's always difficult when it comes to the class where I have to tell the students that because I don't want to uh, uh, my voice to break <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm telling them because it's so upsetting. Um, now, one of the one of the things uh, we have to recognise when we're as well as talking about all these Jews that died is that three quarters of Jews in France actually survived the war. Um, so, seventy five percent were not deported. And this has led after the war, and actually recently, for some people to make an apology for Vichy by saying, well, Vichy can't have been all that bad because 75% of these Jews survived. Um, and some recent historians have tried to write the history of France's participation in the Holocaust as one of protection and rescue rather than um, being complicit in the deportation of the Jews. Um, now, I think from my point of view, um, I think that's outrageous uh, because what we have to recognise is that without Vichy's help, without these French policemen arresting Jews, what could the Germans have done? They, they couldn't yeah. have arrested them themselves. There's no resources um, to go out and round people up, is there? Just say no. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I completely no. agree with this argument and people have shot me down. So, um, uh, Chris, I really want to say thank you for bringing this point up. It is so important we talk about it and we're not talking about it. 
Yes, yeah. So, so, so Hitler would not divert soldiers from fighting the Soviet Union to arrest Jews in France. Um, so, so without the French police doing it, there is no one else. There, there are some explanations that might explain the survival of the Jews. For example, the geography of France means that Jews can hide uh, better than in other countries. The uh, the fact that France is liberated in 1944 before maybe the Holocaust. Uh, radicalizes to its ultimate extent. Um, that that may have saved some Jews. The fact that Hitler wanted to do different things in France uh, than in Eastern Europe, so he's less concerned with ethnically cleansing the territories of France. Um, but to to rewrite the history as one in which the French come out as the heroes is un- unacceptable uh, from from my point of view. I am. Um... This is where our questions ended, but I, I just think there's one more we have to ask. You've mentioned one word earlier on, and that was trials. These people in government, the Vichy government, I mean, I, I've already alluded to it as well. Uh, Petain's uh, reputation is utterly ruined. He's remembered as a traitor now, um, regardless of the First World War. Nobody, anyone with a picture of him on their bedroom wall now has got a screw loose in France. But what are the consequences for these men at the end of the war? Um, well, uh, Laval uh, is uh, executed. So Pierre Laval, who's twice led the government, he he's executed. Um, Adm- Admiral Darlan, who was uh, also head of government, he was actually assassinated uh, midway through the war uh, in, in December 1942. Um, Marshal Peytam does stand trial and he is sentenced uh, to death. Uh, but Charles de Gaulle, who who is then leader of the the provisional government in France, commutes it to a kind of a life in, in exile. So he is uh, exiled to a small island off the Atlantic coastline, where he um, lives for about five more years and uh, becomes senile, really. So um, the Peytan is said- World War One service that buys him that concession, isn't it? Uh, yes, and and perhaps because he's he's a very old man at that time, um, and uh, he is also uh, he's not a friend of De Gaulle, but they've known each other for a long time too. Um, but but yes, the the le- his legacy, his his story of heroism from the First World War counts a lot it, uh, for for the decision that De Gaulle makes, um, and in fact today he is remembered. Uh, obviously more for Vichy than for for what he did in the First World War. But recently in 2016, when it was the anniversary of the Battle of Verdun, um, Peytan, of course, known as the victor of Verdun for seemingly turning around the French army at that time, there was still a debate in France about, well, should we remember Peytan for what he did in the First World War at this time and just ignore the, the fact that he was complicit in such misery afterwards so there was still a debate about it chris i mean i always enjoy a world war ii podcast (laughs) but today i have been so captivated by everything you've said i've learned so much more about vichy france and um and even agreed with you very many times which has been uh, (laughs) absolutely excellent for me and i know alex has enjoyed this so thank you so much for joining us today and ladies and gentlemen don't forget to go to our online bookstore to grab yourself a copy of this book it is such a great book i can't recommend it any more than i'm recommending it now so thank you so much for joining us No, thank you very much. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. 
You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.